chapter 4. I'm going to read the entire chapter of Nehemiah chapter 4. I'm going to read the whole chapter, so all of chapter 4, and then we'll pray and we'll uh, begin to work through this. Now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yeah, what, what they're building, if a fox goes on it, he'll break it. He'll break down the stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together, half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashenites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will, be, we will, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come upon them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half, of, half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Father, we, we thank you for the story, the account of, of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. We thank you, Father, for uh, the burdens that you place on our hearts, um, that which needs to be rebuilt, that which needs to be um, built up in the kingdom. And Father, I pray that, God, you would prepare us for the discouragement that comes from building. I pray, Father, that you would put it in us to be ready, uh, to be vigilant. God, I pray that you'd put it in us to, to persevere. God, I pray, help us not to quit. Uh, God, those things that you have called us to, those things that you have 
have laid upon our hearts personally and also as a church. God, I pray that you would give us a relentless spirit, that we would not lose heart. Father, I pray, help us to build. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so once again, a little bit of review. So uh, the book of Nehemiah occurs right after the period that we call the exile. Now, what that basically means is, is that after God had fulfilled the promises that he made to Abraham, remember, God's a promise keeper, by making Israel a nation and then giving them the promised land, God had given them repeated warnings against idolatry, okay? Uh, idolatry is when you love something more than God for, for us and really for Israel as well. Idolatry is basically when, when God shows you his glory and he shows you his greatness and he shows you his power and he shows you his faithfulness and God reveals just how awesome he is. Idolatry is when we're like, nah, I don't want any of that. Uh, I'm not interested in that. I would rather have and then whatever else that is. So, so idolatry is essentially when we say, God, I'm not interested in you. I, I don't want you. I am much more interested in this thing or this, you know, in, in the case of Israel, uh, statues of wood and stone that often represented sex or money or power or whatever it was. For us today, really, the same idols just take away the, the wood and stone carvings, but really the, the same principles behind what people will say, basically, I don't want God. I'd rather have this. I'm more interested in this. I believe this will satisfy me rather than God. And so God had warned them again and again about the dangers of idolatry and what would happen if they turned to idols. And, and Israel rejected and, 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 and turned to idols again and again, rejected God, turned to idols. And so in 722 B.C., God gave the northern kingdom into the hands of the Assyrians. In 586 B.C., God gave the southern kingdom and Jerusalem into the hands of the Babylonians. Well, just as God had spoken through Jeremiah the prophet, remember God is a promise keeper. And he told Jeremiah the prophet that my people will be in exile for 70 years. And sure enough, 70 years after, after uh, Jerusalem goes into exile, God moves in the heart of a king named Cyrus, a Persian king. And, and again, God, God is sovereign. He does whatever he pleases, right? And so I kind of picture it like this. One day, Cyrus wakes up and he's like, man, I just don't know why, but I, I, I just feel like I ought to let the Jews go, you know? I'm sure he brought that to staff meeting, and the, the staff was like, what are you doing, you know? Why do you care about this? Well, how is that good for us? And he's like, I don't know. I just, I just can't get it off me, you know? Let's just let them all go, and, and, and he does. He lets all the Jews return back to Jerusalem. They don't come all at once. They come in waves over about a 150-year period. Nehemiah is the third wave of those Jews returning to Jerusalem. Well, Nehemiah chapter 1 starts out with a burden. It starts out, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. God has positioned him very strategically. He still is a captive. He would be probably like a slave, but he's, he's positioned strategically in a powerful position in the kingdom. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, he hears a report from Jerusalem. Now remember, the Jews have been back there now for almost maybe 80 to 100 years, and he gets a report that they are still not thriving, that, that worship has not resumed, that the walls of the city are broken down and then indeed Jerusalem will not be or it is not what God has intended it to be and so Nehemiah has a burden put on his heart remember we described a burden as what ought to be right it's like man I see from the scriptures that my family ought to be this or my discipleship ought to be this or my church ought to be this or this ought to be happening in the nations and Nehemiah gets that burden about Jerusalem of what ought to be in Jerusalem and that burden leads him to four months of fasting and praying until finally 
The burden that led to prayer leads to risk-taking action. And Nehemiah comes before the king, and he asks the king for basically 12 years off, uh, political and military assistance, and a blank check for as much materials as is needed to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Now, by all rational accounts, the king should have laughed and then cut his head off. Like, that, that, that's really probably what everybody would have expected to have happened. You know, here comes your slave, and he says, by the way, can I have 12 years off? Would you give me, uh, you know, a blank check for as much materials as I need to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? And would you throw your political might and, and power behind me and, and, and force all the nations to leave me alone around me? You know, I, I, I mean, he's got no right to ask this, but because we learned this in chapter 2, in verse uh, 8, because the good hand of my God was upon me. That's the way... Nehemiah describes it. Nehemiah describes that God's, God's muscle was behind this request. God, God's favor in opening doors and changing the heart of the king was behind Nehemiah because Nehemiah had a burden from the Lord. And so he commits himself to this mission. The king says, yeah, I'll give you all that. He goes to Jerusalem. He prays and plans. By the way, how did you do with your planning? Last week we, we, we talked about, we kind of finished with, with prayer and planning. Man, Nehemiah was a guy that not only prayed about what God had laid on his heart, but but he wrote things down. He planned. He got. He strategized about how can I make a reality what God has put upon my heart. And so I challenged you last week. Did you put something down about your family? Did, did you plan this week about the mission that God has laid on your heart, the burden that God's put on you? I, I hope that you did. And Nehemiah mobilizes the people in chapter 3 to rebuild this wall. We kind of leave them in chapter 3, group by group, all along the wall, building together. Great picture of the church. They're accomplishing the work because the good hand of God is upon them. But today... We have a less encouraging reality to deal with, okay? So we, we might want to say, well, if the good hand of God is on you, man, it is nothing but smooth sailing, you know? I mean, just like when he came into the king, hey, I need this, this, and this. The king's like, you bet, you can have it, here you go. We might think that, well, that's the way all of the work is going to go. So whatever you set your mind to for your family, whatever you set your mind to for your church or your small group or your own discipleship, we might think, well, man, if God's hand's upon you, it's just going to be nothing but smooth sailing and that is, couldn't be further from the truth. As we open up chapter 4, when you read chapter 4, it's this continual, basically, work, resistance, work, resistance, work, resistance. It, it, it's basically build opposition, build opposition, build opposition, build opposition, all the way through chapter 4. And really, honestly, through the rest of the book in Nehemiah, we see that same thing. The reality that whenever you attempt God's work, whenever you're on God's mission, whenever you respond in action to the burden that God has placed upon your heart, whatever that might be, whether it be to make disciples or, or, to, or to share the glory seeds of the Lord with the next generation of children, whether it be to care for the orphan and the homeless or the helpless or to rebuild your marriage or your family, you ought to expect opposition. All right, one of the things that I hope today does is that I hope we just kind of get it in our heads because honestly, we forget this incredibly quickly. We need to get it in our heads that whatever we attempt for God at some point is going to be met with opposition. And the reason that's so important is often we interpret the opposition as, well, I shouldn't be doing this. Or, well, I tried, you know, but it's just too hard. Or, well, you know, I was going, but this happened, and so now I quit. And we almost justify our quitting, our, 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 our ceasing to work because it, it got hard, because there were problems or attack or we got fatigued or there were difficulties or somebody criticized us or there was slander or persecution. 
But, but the reality is, we should expect that. Like, honestly, if you've been building at something, if God laid a burden on your heart and you've been just building at it for, you know, a year and you have not faced any kind of criticism, opposition, problems, or struggles, I don't, you may be building the wrong thing. Like, 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 I would almost go that far to say, that's when you ought to be a little bit alarmed, you know? Like, what is happening here? Like, like what, what's going on? This is not normative according to the scriptures. Because here, here's what we find in the scriptures. When you build for the kingdom, you should expect opposition. Because instead of removing all the obstacles and struggles and opposition to the gospel, instead, God has consistently chosen through his word to overcome that opposition through his people and by his power. I mean, in fact, I would go so far as to say God is more glorified when, when, when he takes you and, and drives you through the opposition than he is when there just isn't any opposition. Colt has really uh, latched onto the story of David and Goliath. We've been doing Bible stories, and so it's funny how they'll just, like, at first it was Jonah. He talked about Jonah a bunch. Lately, it's been, it's been David and Goliath. In fact, they're not at Haven's skating party at the, at the, at the skating rink, her birthday party. Um, man, I, I bet we reenacted David and Goliath a hundred times, you know? I mean, and it, it doesn't take long. Like, it's reenactment, do it again, do it again, do it again, you know? And pretty much the story, the part of the story he likes is he likes to be David, and, uh, and he's like, you know, you come at me with sticks. He remembers that part, you know? And then I keep trying to, to get him to say, you know, but I come at you with the name of the Lord. Like, I correct him every time, but I don't know. The sticks thing is what stuck. But anyway, and then he had like, a, he had some glow sticks. He had a, a straight one. He had one that had a, like an eye hook on it. And he would like, and he would you know, do that, you know, incredibly accurate. Like, I, I don't know, like he needs to be in the Olympics or something if there's a glow stick, you know, twirling deal. But I mean, like he hit, he, he would hit me almost every time, you know, and we would do it again. Again, right and, and I got to thinking you know what if the story was changed like like what if and by the way this story so many of the stories in the Bible mirror what we see in Nehemiah so so for instance let me walk you through that because I just want you to see how how normative this is in the scripture so in first Samuel 17 David gets a burden and, and his burden is basically that hey that that Philistine ought not to be defying the armies of the living God he ought not to be shaming the armies of the living God. It says in, uh, where's that at? Let me see if I can find it. 20, 1 Samuel 17, 24. Um, David heard the, the Philistine in the ranks of Israel. All the men said, uh, fled from us afraid. I'm not going to be able to find it in my... And David said to the men who stood by... Oh, yeah, here it is, here it is. Uh, 26. What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? See, that, that's his burden. He's like, man, this... This should not be. Israel should not be under the thumb of their enemies. And then he says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I mean, like David has a burden. That's his burden. He said, This ought not be. This, this uncircumcised Philistine ought not to be defying the armies of the living God. He, he, it's got a burden, and his burden leads him to this risk-taking action. And, and you got this shepherd boy that goes out and, with a, with a rock and a slingshot, defeats the giant. But how would the story be changed if there were no opposition? So let's say the Philistines are lining up in battle against uh, Israel, and uh, 
Philistines are bringing their champion, Goliath. But on the way there, God gives him this horrible planter's wart on the, on the, on the you know, bottom of his foot, you know. And he, like, gets out of a chair. He can't even put weight on it, you know. He's just like, he's a, and he's a big baby about it. You know, he's, like, crying, and, you know, and they're all embarrassed. And you never hear about him, you know. And, and so the story is, you know, well, Israel went out to battle the Philistines, and they had a battle, and Israel won, you know. And uh, you see what I'm saying? Like, 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 opposition is what brings glory to God there. You know, the fact that Israel is paralyzed and, and then God, God chooses this unexpected, you know, redeemer hero guy who fights on behalf of the people and slays the giant to God be the glory, setting it up for the gospel. You know, when we're, we're frozen in fear and inability and here comes our Messiah born as an infant, you know, to poverty-stricken parents and God raises him up and, and he slays the devil, death and sin and, and raises him up to be glory. I mean, you know, it's, it's, part of, it's part of God's story. So I guess what I'm saying is we need to learn to see opposition in that light. That this is, this is a God-glorifying opportunity. Some of you have com- committed, I-, I believe, in the last couple of weeks to rebuild what is broken down in your families, in your spiritual lives, in your small groups, in your neighborhood. Man, it'd be a cool discussion tonight at small groups just to say, okay, so two weeks ago or three weeks ago when we started this, man, God laid this burden on my heart and I committed, I committed to, to build in this way. You know, it'd be cool to talk about in your small groups, how have you faced opposition? Like, like how, how's, that, how's that happened? You know, you, you had this, this ought to be in my life, in my family, in my community. So what, what powerful forces have actively opposed you? I, I think there are probably some stories. But we, we should expect that there will be opposition. Partly because here's what we're up against. We're up against the devil. Uh, the Bible is really clear about that. Uh, the devil will oppose you in your work in Ephesians 6, that great spiritual warfare passage where he says in verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I mean, there is this reality of being opposed by this supernatural spiritual being who is the devil. I mean, that, that's a biblical reality. In Daniel chapter 10, there's this really kind of a, an interesting story where Daniel prays. He prays for insight, and God dispatches a messenger to give him, to give him what he needs there. But in, in Daniel chapter 10, li- listen to when the messenger finally gets there. Here's what he says, uh, 10, 12, I believe it is. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the king of Persia. And I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is of the days yet to come. I mean, most people interpret that as you've got this angel's dispatched from heaven, you know, to, to give Daniel this message, and he is opposed by this demonic being. Uh, and Michael, the archangel, actually comes and battles through that. And get, you know, I mean, it's just like this kind of mind-blowing story that that's what's happening in the spiritual realm. Kind of a picture of Ephesians 6, you know. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against these 
powerful demonic devilish forces so so the the devil is against us the world is against us all right so the bible is very clear that the world is against the gospel uh, and by the world we mean the world system the the way that, that that the world thinks the way the world values so so the world is under the sway of the evil one the new testament tells us that and so the world's going to love certain things exalt certain things um feel certain things are super important and here here's the deal jesus messes all that up that, that's why there's this resistance between the gospel and the world is because the world is saying, wow, look at what we value and celebrate. And when you bring Jesus in the equation, he, he messes that up. Honestly, that, that is why Pastor Vijaskar in, in, in India, that's why he was in jail. That's why his church was in jail. That's why he's still going to come up to trial here in the month of December. Uh, when, when I got to talk to him about what that whole deal was ex- actually about, the whole thing started when, when his little village, a uh, prominent Hindu family in his village, had this big kind of feast. You know, they had this feast and they offered it to the idol, the Hindu God. And, and it was like this like honoring thing where they were so proud of, you know, what we've done here. And we've got this big feast and we've got all this great food. And we're offering it to this, this, uh, the idol of our village. And they were all like pumped up about it. And none of the Christians came, you know. I mean, they all just like blew it out. Like, like no, we're not going to go celebrate that. No, we're not, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to be a part of that. That was offensive. Like it angered them enough to have a riot, beat them up and throw them into jail. And so you're going to have opposition against for or from the world. In Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1, notice it says, Now when Sambalot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. This guy, Sambalot, is a, he's, he's kind of a powerful political figure in the region. And when he hears that the Jews are rebuilding the wall, man, it, it angers him. Like, like he does not want Jerusalem to thrive. That messes up his kingdom. That messes up his plans. That messes up what he had going. All right? And, and so he's angry. Man, you know, you know what can be really unsettling for a Christian? Is when, when like you're really trying to do the right thing. You're really excited about the kingdom of God. It's the best thing ever to you. Like Jesus is the best thing ever to you. And, and you've just come to realize, man, there's life in Jesus and I want everybody to have this. And, and when you try to kind of live that out, then you, you meet this opposition. That, that can be super unsettling to, to a believer. I, in fact, I can tell you, 20 years ago when I came here to Lincoln, I, I still remember this moment. I, I remember the, the first time, and it was like maybe a month after I'd gotten here, and, and we had to, a kid that was coming through our bus ministry, and, and the kid was really beginning to respond to the gospel. He's very interested in the gospel, and so, you know, I'm excited about that, and so I'm like making my rounds, I'm visiting people, and I, and I go to his, his, his house, you know, the address that we had for him, because I want his mom and dad to know, you know, that man, he, this you, you young guy, you've been sending him to church, and man, he is really interested in the gospel, he's really responding, so I want to talk to you about what the next steps are, and how how can we help him really embrace who, 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 who he can be in Christ and, and what the gospel means? And, and I remember, I, I know more than, uh, you rang the doorbell, the lady, a lady opened his door and I said, you know, hi, I'm Jason Dirks from Lincoln Avenue Baptist Church and you know, your, your son, you know, whatever his name was, has been coming and he's really excited. I didn't even get maybe that much, probably not much more. And she looks at me like, I hate you more than anything. And like she slams the door so hard that I thought they're gonna have a foundation problem. Like they're gonna have, you know, there's gonna be something, you know, they're gonna have a 
crack in their wall. Like she slammed it. She was that angry. And I just remember standing there, you know, you, you're just kind of unsettled. Like, like I'm so excited about this. Like I'm thinking this is the greatest thing ever. And, and you're furious with me. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's hard for believers sometimes. Have you had that experience? Have you had that experience where you're like, man, this is so great, you know? And so here comes Nehemiah. They're going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's going to be the light to the nations. It's going to be the incubator through whom the Messiah comes who's going to save the world. And there's this guy, Sambalot, who's a neighbor, and he is furious about it. Why? Because what, what Jesus represents, what God represents, what Israel represents, okay, that, that, that's, not, that's not a part of Sambalot's plan. Like, he's, he's celebrating other stuff. He's, he's revved up about other stuff. So he's furious. So you're going to meet opposition in a spiritual realm. I mean, that's just real from the devil. You're going to meet it from the world because, because G, valuing Jesus above all else, that goes contrary to most, almost everything in the world. And then you're, you're going to meet opposition. Here's the kind of the tricky one from your own flesh. In Romans 7, 15, Paul probably has the, one of the greatest statements in the New Testament about, about kind of battling your own unredeemed humanness that is left until Jesus Christ returns. And he says in verse 15, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to, but, the very, but I do the very thing that I hate. Okay, now I, I bet you a lot of you understand that experience. You understand the experience of, of wanting to be a certain way. Like, like you, you want to build in your family. You want to be a spiritual leader. You want to invest in your kids. And then you get all crossways in your flesh. Does that ever happen to you? If, if it doesn't happen to you, I need to talk to you because it's still happening to me. And I, I really would like to know your secret, all right? Uh, in fact, it happened to me this week, you know, I had, I had a morning where I just, I, I was, my flesh was just dogging me, you know, and I'd gotten kind of cranky about something and upset about something and, and I, and, and I was not building, I was not building, my, my, my flesh had kind of paralyzed me. And, and, and so, so all of those things are, are, are things that produce opposition to the work. And when we're acting in faith in those areas, the enemy's primary motive is for you to quit. Okay, that's what he wants. Just stop. Stop building. That, that's what Sambalot wants. Stop building, man. Stop putting up those walls. Stop trying to make Jerusalem a light to the nation. Stop doing that. If they'll just stop, he's happy with them. If they'll just stop, we can be friends again. Okay, and so, so you're, you're going to meet that as you try to build, as you try to rebuild whatever the burden is God has laid upon your heart. You're going to meet resistance, and the resistance is going to, Put on the pressure until you stop. That's what he wants you to do. Just stop. That's what the enemy wants is for you to stop building. So what do we see Nehemiah encounter here? Well, a couple things. So let's, let's begin in verses 1 through 3. The first thing Nehemiah encounters is ridicule and intimidation. Okay, and so uh, verse 2, this is Sambalot. He said in the presence of his brothers, you know, ridicule works best with a crowd, doesn't it? Like, like if you can get a crowd to kind of, you know, rev that up, that's even better. So he, he gets kind of a crowd. He's probably a funny guy. Uh, and he says in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? All right, no, notice that. What are these feeble Jews doing? Man, I, I just want to reiterate again. I think it's worth noting that when Nehemiah was doing nothing, nobody was criticizing him. You know, we, we don't read about any, you know, we don't read about anything happening in, in Persia. <laughs> you know, he's not getting being criticized, he's not being ridiculed. It's, it's not until he attempts something great. 
Please don't value not being criticized so highly that you don't ever attempt anything for God. And that's, if you're a people pleaser like me, that, that's a really dangerous position to be in where, you know, you, you just want people to be happy with you so much that you never really attempt anything great for God. The, the only way to avoid criticism is to just to do nothing. I mean, that's exactly what the devil wants. He, that's what he wants you to respond to criticism is, ah, you know, throw up your hands and be like, okay, oh, you know, I'm going to try that again. You know, last time, you know, I did, and then I, I got criticized. You know, I got unjustly, I can't believe what someone said. I, I agree with you that quitting is the answer to not being criticized. <laughs> but I, I just, I don't think it's worth it. I know it's not worth it. So, Sambalet's strategy here is make these guys look foolish. Make them look ridiculous. You, what are these feeble, you're, you're weak, you're frail, you can't do this. You, you look foolish doing this. And, and again, this is not something uncommon in the scriptures. In fact, 1 Corinthians 1.18, listen to what it says. For the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. I, I mean, I think you got to just start with that. You, you got to start with the fact that the world is blind to the beauty of the gospel. That's why they turn to idols. That's why they prefer idols to the gospel is because they can't see the glory of Jesus. And therefore, what you value above all else is going to be foolish to the world. Like, I, I think facing that, starting with that, understanding that that, that is the case, that helps. That helps me anyway. And it's exactly what Sambalet is trying to trying to do here. He's trying to he's trying to make these guys feel bad for believing that Jerusalem ought to be a light to the nations. He's trying to make them feel like you can't do this. You're not able to do this. You're weak. You're feeble. You know, unfortunately, this is a common experience for college freshmen in secular universities. Uh, the, the 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 folks the class from Lincoln Avenue that graduated uh, in May. I've already heard from two of them that this very thing happened. Right off the bat, freshman year, they walk in, they're in their class, and the professor begins to say something to the effect of, now some of you may you know, still be you know, really foolish evangelical Christians, and so let me just, just tell you, you're going to have to lay that down if you, if you want to be you know, wise and, and, uh, and, and prominent and, and you know, smart like me. It's, it's Sambalot. I mean, it is no different than what this guy is doing in Nehemiah chapter 4. He's trying to tap in. You know, we all, we all kind of have these inner fears anyway. You know, Every, everybody kind of has this stuff when you try to do something. You think, man, am I able to do this? I'm weak. I'm frail. And it's true. And, and Samuel is trying to tap into that. He's trying to turn their gaze away from God's strength and to their own weakness. Many a dad has given up building a legacy of family devotions because he feels incompetent and silly when he does it. You, you, know, you know what's happening there? The devil's playing on our own feelings of inadequacy and he's magnifying those. Oh, you're going to look foolish. You don't want to be a fool. Why, why do we care so much about that, by the way? That, that'd be a great thing to unpack. Why do we care so much about that? So, sometimes we'll avoid relationships. We'll avoid ministry. We'll avoid, you know gospel opportunities because we we don't we don't want to be foolish we don't want to look foolish Sambalet's playing on that 
He says, are you guys going to finish up in a day? That's in verse 2 and 3 here. These are all right together. You know, you you really think you can do this? You can't finish this? You're going to use all these damaged, burnt stones, you know? Whatever you you build the other guy, he's like, man, whatever they build, a fox is going to run across top of it and knock it down. I mean, you guys are wasting your time. Now, what's interesting to me is that Nehemiah does not get paralyzed with doubt or fear or anger. You, You know what I love? From what we see here, he does not waste a week stewing over this. Anybody guilty of that? Like you, you, you get criticized, you get, you know, somebody come at, comes at you, you face opposition, and, and literally like a week of your life is spent like running over that deal over and over and over, you know, and you just kind of get paralyzed over it. Man, he, he does, that doesn't happen at all. He didn't spend the morning writing a letter to the editor. He didn't get in this peggy, petty argument with Sambalot. You know what he does? I'll give you the quick story. He prays and he works. Like literally, he prays and then he just gets to work. Like there's, there's really very little time even dealing with this guy. I, I love, let's go back to the story of David and Goliath. I love when uh, uh, Eliab, let me read you this. So after David reveals his burden, you know, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he defies the army of the living God? His older brother. You would think your own family, you know, would be proud of you. His older brother, Eliab, here's, here's what he says to him. Verse 28, 1 Samuel 17. Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Do you, do you see what he's doing? You can't even take care of a couple sheep. What do you hear spouting off your mouth about doing great things for God? I know your presumption, the evil of your heart. See, questions is you're, you're you're just a wicked little kid. For you come down to see the battle. Verse twenty nine, David said, "What have I done now? Was it not but a word?" And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. I love that about David. Like, like he's like, "What?" You know, and he just turns around and he and he says the same thing. Who defi- who is this guy that defies the He doesn't give Eliab sixty seconds. And he's just moving on. Man, I like that. Nehemiah, same thing. Nehemiah just, just he just, he prays, he prays. And, and, and by the way, maybe that's the key. I decided that we weren't going to spend a whole lot of time on this prayer. First of all, because it's one of those, uh, what do they call those imprecatory prayers in the Psalms? Where you're, you're, you're praying, you're almost praying like, not personally, but for Israel you know, it's when those prayers where God's like, you know, or the psalmist is like, God, strike down my, you know, your enemies and don't forgive them and, you know, put them in a jar of boiling oil. And, you know, I mean, it's one of those kind of prayers, not that bad, but, you know, and so I thought, hey, we're not going to do it. But what, what I want you to see is gut reaction of prayer. That, that's Nehemiah. Every one of these, you're going to see it over and over again. So we prayed. We prayed, and then we moved on. We prayed, and then we moved on. I like verse 6. Verse six says, so we built the wall and the wall was joined together. Half a tight, they're half done. For the people had a mind to work. See, there it is right there. That's what, that's what gets you through the opposition. 
is when you have a mind and a heart to work. Now, second, we're gonna have to go quickly here. Nehemiah encounters the threat of physical attack, conflict. So this happens actually several times. So verse seven and eight, and then later on, it happens again. We're gonna try to put them together real quickly. When Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites, it's verse seven, and the Ashdodites heard the, the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, that the breaches were beginning to be closed. They were angry and they plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to cause a confusion in it. Okay, again, how does Nehemiah respond? Verse nine, we pray to our God and we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. And then they keep building. Like there's this continual response of praying. But a couple, couple points here. Notice it doesn't get better, right? So, so the first instance was mockery, ridicule. He prays, he moves on, he gets to work, they get halfway done. It comes again. All right, so again, sometimes, sometimes that's our thing is, well, I dealt with this once, and now here it comes again. Yes. I mean, that, that's what we should be like. Well, I dealt with this once, so it's coming again, isn't it? Where is it, you know? And if it, it came twice. Okay, where's the third one? Hey, guys, get ready for the third one, and then the fourth, and then the fifth. I mean, that, that's, that's, really, that's really what we should see from Nehemiah. Is it really doesn't get better. Again, God is not taking it away. God is enabling his people to overcome it. We always want God to take it all away. Like we want Sambalit to come back the next day with a box of donuts and a, and a I'm sorry card and be like, really sorry, man. I said you guys were weak and feeble. That's not it. You're strong and handsome and I'm really wrong. You know, give me a hammer. Let me help. You know, I mean, that's what we want and, that, and, that, and that's great. That's, that's just not always the case. Instead, God enables them to press through it. That, that's what's normative in the Bible. This forward momentum despite the opposition. So Nehemiah's response, set a guard, day and night, day and night. And then, then notice, notice, jump down to 15, uh, 15 through 23. They, they, they reinforce their constant vigilance. So I'm, I'm going to go through these fast. Verse 16, half of Nehemiah's servants are committed to their time of military protection. The other half work on the wall. That's kind of his personal guard, okay? Verse 17, the folks carrying supplies, like, you know, mortar, rock, whatever, they, they got one hand carrying supplies, the other hand with their spear or their sword or their whatever weapon they had, right? Everybody's a soldier at this point. Everybody's in the battle. Everybody's always ready. In, in our case, everybody's in the spiritual battle. Like, we're working with one hand we're vigilantly in the scriptures in prayer doing spiritual battle with the other everybody's ready for an attack in verse 20 they devised an alarm system all right we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna blow the trumpet wherever there's a wherever there's an attack and then you know what we're gonna gather together we're, we're gonna everybody's gonna swarm the, the the one place where they're attacking verse 22 and 23 we're not gonna take our we're not gonna put our jammies on that's what verse 22 and 23 say we're, we're gonna we're not gonna put, we're not gonna put our jammies on we're gonna stay in our clothes we're gonna sleep in our clothes it's this picture of constant vigilance it's what it's what the bible says over and over and over again in the new testament be ready like you got to be on your guard you got to stay awake you got to walk in the light all those phrases in the New Testament are this, this idea of constant vigilance. I don't know how wise this is or whether you want to hear it or not, but, man, I, I lost a half a day of work this week. Um, I, was, I was here, and I was where I was supposed to be, but I was not here and where I was supposed to be. Does that make sense? I, I, I got, I'd gotten cranked up over a deal and uh, felt super justified and... Uh, Spent a half a day, like, in my mind, justifying myself. And uh, 
not doing the work of the Lord. Um, it was an hour or so before I reached for my sword. But you know what I found with those things? When you give it an hour or so to get momentum, it's, it's a lot harder to stop. Does that make sense? I could show you the page in my journal where I'm like writing verses. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I, I'd read the verses, I'd prayed the verses, now I'm writing them. You know, I know the right thing. Like, I know, I know. That's what's discouraging about the flesh. I mean, you cannot get it, get a run. If you, if you let it get a 30-yard run at you, ah, it's, I mean, maybe, I don't know. For me, I'm just my own personal experience. Like, I'm, I'm writing these verses down. I'm praying them. Like, I've got them. Well, God, I know my heart is not right. But, but the point I'm trying to make is, guess what? Half a day's work, gone. And I needed it. I had a funeral Wednesday. Uh, I was preaching uh, at the prison on Thursday. Had a wedding Friday. You remember? I mean, I, I I didn't have time to be messing around with my own sin. Nehemiah's saying, one hand on the sword, all the time. One hand on the sword. When there's an attack, I didn't do this either. You blow the trumpet and you get your brothers to help you. I should have blown the trumpet early that morning and just got my brothers in and got some help. Last thing. Nehemiah encounters the threat of worker fatigue. Okay, look, look in verse 10. They're halfway done at this point. And in verse 10 it says, and it was said that strength of those bear, who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. Man, I, I love that phrase, too much rubble. What's that mean? Ah, this, you know what? Uh, you know the the beginning of a of a project, a mission, is exciting. The end of it is satisfying. The middle is a lot of rubble. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like like when you be when you begin to build, you have the idea, man, I want to do this. I want It's always exciting. And then as you get into it and you get into the mess and and you begin to be fatigued is really the only way I know how to describe that. Not only are they dealing with that kind of fatigue, but this this is a really interesting part of the story. They're dealing with a a family fatigue. Okay, so they're getting pulled at. um, This is a bit choppy when you read it, but but look at at what's happening here. Okay, so um, beginning in verse 11. And our enemies said they will not know or see we, we, we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Verse 12, at that time the Jews who lived near them, near the enemies. Okay, so, so, so not everybody lives in Jerusalem. That, that, that was true. Like, like you got to have farmers and ranchers and, you know, I mean, right? And so you got, you got Jerusalem being the city where everybody would flee to and the walls would and the gates would shut when there was an attack from an army. But, but normally you, you had to live out in your farm outside the gate. So there's all these kind of little villages and, and communities outside of Jerusalem, all right? Well, those men have come in to Jerusalem to build the walls and, and the families have stayed out in the villages. Well, the, the enemy is out there and the enemy is constantly threatening attack. And so, so notice, notice what he says, verse 12. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to, said to us ten times, you must return to us. 
You, you got these wives and, and children coming in to Jerusalem into the wall every day saying, you got to come home, you got to come home. Sambalot, the Arabs, they, they've moved in. They're right outside our village. And they're, they're talking trash. You know, they, can't, they, they come into the restaurants and they're scaring everybody. you got to come home, you got to come home. You got, Ten times it says, you got to come home. Oh, man, you, you ever feel pressed like that? Anybody ever feel pulled like that? Like, you, you know, God's, God's put this, this mission on your heart. And now not only is it getting hard and messy, but now your, your family's pulling at you. They feel in jeopardy. It's really interesting what Nehemiah does. Verse um, 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their, their clans, their families, with their swords and their spears and their bows. So he brings them all in. That's why I read that. He brings them all in and he stations them in by families, by clans, in the breaches of the wall. And then he says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who's great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah knows this. And when you're, when you're fighting this battle and but your wife and children are out in the village and you don't know how they're doing. That's one thing. But when they're standing beside, behind you, oh man, that guy fights in a different way, doesn't he? Man, here, here's what I see is really brilliant there. Nehemiah makes a direct connection between the building of this wall is what will protect our families. Like we're not gonna thrive. To give up and go home and you guys go back you know, and, and, and be there in the village, you know, in case something happens. That's short-sighted. Because the only thing that's going to really provide protection and safety for us, the only way all of our families are going to thrive, is if we build this wall. So we're going to bring them in. And now we're going to build. We're gonna, all our efforts are going to be, this has got to be built. I, I almost think he's, he's saying... This is, this is a real way to say, what's at stake if you quit? So, I, I, in other words, I, I know there's pressures on all of us to stop building, right? And sometimes that pressure comes from our family, honestly. Family needs, family. But what's at stake if we stop? How does that impact the family if, if we don't build our discipleship? If we don't become the people we're supposed to be? What's at stake then? Man, I would love it if, if I thought three weeks ago everybody responded to their burden. Like God laid something heavy on you. Like this, this ought to be in my life. This ought to be in my family. God's saying build here. But, but I guess I want to back up and, and maybe... Maybe some of you, that day was a distraction that day, or maybe nothing, nothing was just on your heart. And I'd love to give the Holy Spirit another opportunity with you, like for you to open up and say, God, what is my burden? Where should I be building? What, what have you laid on my heart that it ought to be in my life? It's not, and it ought to be, or it is, and it ought not be. What, what is not what it ought to be in my life? in my small group, in my ministry, in my family, in my whatever, in the nations, whatever God would lay upon you. 
And then maybe others of you, man, you've already taken that up. I'm, I'm just betting you've met opposition. I'm just betting either from your flesh or your, your neighbor or the world or whatever, something is coming against you. And man, that today would be an encouragement that you would not quit. You'd respond in prayer and spiritual vigilance. You'd have one hand on the sword and one hand on the trowel. Charles Spurgeon named his, uh, his newsletter, The Sword and the Trowel. The Sword and the Trowel. Father, help us. Help us, Father, to be obedient to your word. Help us, Father, to respond. God, I pray that you would lay a burden on us, God, to build. And, Father, that you would help us not to quit, not to be discouraged, not to be faint-hearted, that you would renew our, our desire to be pleasing to you. Father, we'd remember your character. I think about what Nehemiah said in verse 14. Remember the Lord your God, who's awesome. God, I pray that our eyes would be on that and that you'd give us courage to build. In Jesus' name.